Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. So I think we'll start if you're happy both Britta and Dominique to give us a bit of an introduction of yourselves and your careers. Maybe Dominique, if you wanted to start. Fabulous. Um, thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this event. Uh, so I'm an associate professor in bioethics and professionalism at Deakin University's School of Medicine. I've been there for about four years. Uh, before that, I was working at the University of Melbourne where I very boringly did all of my studies. I did a medicine arts degree at Melbourne and then spent about seven years working as a doctor in emergency medicine while doing a PhD in bioethics and then decided to go to the dark side and become a bioethicist rather than a doctor in the long term. Um, my particular areas of interest in bioethics research are at least until a couple of years ago, I would have said related to the um, issues around trade in body parts. So particularly things like organs and tissues, but also reproductive cells, and then a little bit uh, into things like surrogacy. Uh, and also I did quite a bit of work looking at ethical issues around medical, international medical travel. Uh, more recently, I've been working on issues in nephrology um, and professionalism. So I'm gonna come right out at the beginning and say I haven't worked on uh, commercial surrogacy issues for a few years. So I will endeavor to um, keep up to date with the conversation, but I may have to uh, confess at times that I don't actually know what's currently happening in some areas. So I'm really looking forward to be part of this conversation. Awesome, thanks Dominique. We're very lucky to be joined by you. Um, Britta, would you like to do the same? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I think this is quite thrilling to be joining you uh, all the way on the other side of, of the earth. Uh, over here it's uh, 10 o'clock in the morning and um, yes, as uh, Annie said, I'm a, a professor from Amsterdam, the university, the free university of Amsterdam. Uh, I'm a professor of bio law and bioethics. I was appointed uh, only uh, this year in January, so two months before the lockdown started, <laughs> and uh, I'm um, I've uh, I've been studying the area of bio law and bioethics uh, for quite some time. Um, I write about uh, all sorts of things. Lately, I've been uh, writing a lot about human germline gene editing. You know the CRISPR babies, uh, about euthanasia, which is a big thing in, in in the Netherlands, of course, and also about surrogacy. Actually, I'm uh, completely immersed in the topic uh, that we're going to be talking about today because uh, a lot of things are going on uh, these days, both legally and uh, you know, if you've watched the news lately. About the stranded babies in, in Ukraine and other parts of the world, you know, babies born from surrogacy, then you know that it's a, a, a very urgent topic. So I look forward to be discussing it with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Both of you have a really incredible experience and I'm so excited to hear this conversation and be part of it. Um, maybe as just as an introduction, maybe Britta, could you um, explain what commercial surrogacy means and um, what reproductive tourism is? Yeah, so um, surrogacy uh, is from all ages, people often say. It was already in the Bible, I think. Uh, uh, what was it? Somebody's slave had to uh, carry the child for, for the mother. Um, and nowadays we've entered a new setting um, because of uh, novel technologies such as embryo, sorry, uh, egg freezing. It's become possible to also carry uh, somebody's child who is not genetically yours. So then you're uh, carrying a child uh, as a result of IVF. And uh, uh, you can do it on an altruistic basis and you can do it uh, for money. But as we will be discussing, I think, uh, during this um, uh, session, it's very hard to pin down uh, from what point on exactly surrogacy becomes something which can be labeled commercial or, or uh, whether it's a really a gratuitous act. And uh, yeah, so it's uh, already from the start, you know, once you start to find uh, the phenomenon, it's already quite complicated to be telling what's a commercial surrogacy and what's not. Yeah. Um, do you have anything to add, Dominic? 
Are you happy with um, that? Just, I, no, I, I completely agree. And I'm looking forward to the discussion about defining, you know, altruistic, alleged altruistic surrogacy versus commercial. Um, but I think you also had a question about, you know, what is reproductive travel? And um, I'm sure Britta's got much more precise kind of legal definitions, but the way I understand it when I've worked in this space is to think of um, people who travel beyond jurisdictional borders, uh, which could be um, within Australia, for example, from Victoria to the state of New South Wales, that's interjurisdictional uh, travel. And if you're traveling for um, a medical purpose, we often think of that as um, medical travel. So reproduct reproductive travel, when people say that, they're often referring to people traveling internationally for the purpose of accessing um, assisted reproductive technologies, which might be accessing donor eggs, surrogacy, or being able to use techniques, hopefully not CRISPR, but um, you know some other technologies that might not be available in their own country. And there's been a huge amount of debate. I don't know where it's at in the last couple of years, but for years, there was so much debate about what would be the right term for international um, reproductive travel. It used to be fertility tourism, which was understandably recognized as kind of trivializing what was a very important activity for people and maybe stigmatizing it. And then it became, you know, reproductive travel, and then it was cross-border reproductive care. And, you know, there's a lot of different terms, but I always find that fascinating, the way the changes in the terminology often reflect the way where we're thinking about and engaging with particular concepts. So. And then there's people uh, referring to it as reproductive trafficking, or the other way around, reproductive exile. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. It's already uh, a struggle to define the whole uh, phenomenon. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that background and context. I know that it's something that I don't know that much about, so it's really good to get that overview from both of you. Um, so we're going to launch into discussing the ethics and the ethical considerations of commercial surrogacy. So Matt has got some questions about this one. Great. Um, thanks again for being here, guys. Um, and I think what I have to ask kind of follows on from an issue that we just touched on about, like, what's in a name in terms of um, reproductive tourism, etc. Um, but the first question I have to ask is about um, how, if at all, you think a surrogacy contract differs from a regular contract um, and whether a, a, a surrogacy act is capable of being touched by a contract at all? I'm going to flick that one straight the lawyer. <laughs> Sorry? I'm going to let you answer that one. For <laughs> That's a legal question. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, if you if you do a Google search on surrogacy contracts, you can uh, uh, get a very uh, good impression of what's going on in the field. And uh, some of these um, clauses in the surrogacy contracts are quite uh, abhorrent, to be honest, you know, because um, there will be um, uh, provisions in the contracts as to the lifestyle of them. A surrogate mother you know she can't have sex she can't have certain uh, diets uh, she has to go to medical checkups uh, uh, you know it's all quite understandable because you're uh, you want to have uh, certainty as a, a commissioning parent but this is of course not a normal contract because somebody somebody's um, uh, human rights are are at stake as well because you know the carry uh, 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 carrying the child uh, is of course connected with the body of the uh, surrogate mother to such a large extent that uh, you know um, uh, there is a grave danger that the surrogate mother will be um, approached as a mere vessel you know like a gestational carrier that's also some uh, jargon that's uh, uh, <laughs> being being used, and um, so um, in most jurisdictions, people have been very hesitant about enforcing these contracts. So many of the provisions are actually non-enforceable. You know, you cannot go to a court and say, like, oh, you know, we agreed as a surrogate mother and commissioning parents that if you know the commissioning parents wanted to, uh, the child to be aborted, that you know that the surrogate mother would uh, comply with that. 
you, you know, if you go to a court, a court will for sure uh, deny that request. It's non-enforceable. Nevertheless, there, there is a certain pressure, of course, behind such uh, provisions because um, the surrogate mother, she doesn't apply with the contract, even if it's non-enforceable, you know, she, 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 she can uh, say goodbye to the money and, uh, or she will be, she will end up with somebody else's baby. You know, of course she's been carrying it, but probably it's not her own, uh, um, genetically her own child. Sometimes, you know, people, uh, the commissioning parents will want uh, an abortion because there's uh, something wrong with the child. So then you, ha you as a surrogate mother end up with a baby with, um, uh, uh, disabilities and maybe you agreed to the surrogacy agreement in the first place because of the money. So, and this all brings back the baby gammy case, I think. Huh? That's also something that you guys wanted to talk about. I think the baby gammy case is, is quite a clear illustration of, of the pressures on the surrogate mother. And, and in, in the baby gammy case, the surrogate mother in Thailand, she, she managed to stand up against the commissioning parents, but she had to pay a huge price. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so yeah, uh, I, 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 later on in our conversation, I'd also like to talk to you guys about uh, recent proposals that have been made in countries such as the Netherlands and the UK to uh, give surrogacy contracts a, a, a bigger role in, in the regulation. And I'm worried about that, so, but I'll leave that for later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's so interesting that you kind of note that in this situation, because of the character of the, the so-called contract, it's not really enforceable by a court, but it is enforceable by the pressure of money yeah. in the background. Um, yeah, completely agree. Um, and the next question that we have around the ethics um, is in Donna Dickens' article, uh, Can Babies Be Property? She kind of discusses whether they they can be property as they kind of have to be to be involved in this sort of thing um so dominic i might throw to you first as to whether you think babies should be considered property um uh, i've read donna dickinson's excellent work um but i can't immediately of course think what's in that article that you might have in mind there um i think i'll start by if i can just touching on that that question of contracts from an, an ethical perspective what Britta describes there is absolutely one of the biggest ethical challenges um, from a, a medical perspective or a health professional perspective when dealing with um, cases that involve potentially not just a, a paid or a commercial surrogate but anyone who might be a, a surrogate mother but if you've got that contract there and you've set the ground rules and some of the contracts that I recall seeing um, not from perhaps better governed places like the United States, but in, for example, India, um, those contracts can really have quite horrendous clauses. And I don't think we've really conveyed just the, the extent of some of those things. Um, and what often happens in, in those circumstances is you're thinking of the other, I don't know what the legal term is for the contractee, for the woman, that uh, gestational surrogate, as something less than an equal in terms of the decision making. So maybe they, once they make the contract, it's almost like a slave contract. They're effectively agreeing to surrender certain fundamental bodily rights. And from an ethical perspective, we think of that as your bodily or your reproductive autonomy. And as clinicians, you know, in most uh, places, uh, healthcare professionals are now really trained to respect um, the fundamental right of a person who is competent to make decisions for themselves to have control over their body. Like even if their life is at risk, if they make an informed and voluntary decision to refuse treatment, you know, you're really not allowed to interfere, interfere with that unless you're trying to protect other people. So when you get a situation in which the intending or the commissioning parents are saying that we want to do X because we think this will be best um, for the potential child or for our interests, and you've agreed to this, then you know the idea that we would somehow enforce that is, of course, anathema. So it's not just the, the lawyers that would hopefully step in and say, no, you, that's not enforceable. From a medical perspective, we'd say we can't do that. And yet what we know from um, some evidence that's been gathered in places like India and in some parts of India is that women actually, those contracts have been enforced. Um, and they've been enforceable for a variety of reasons. I think a fundamental one is that the women often who have um, been commissioned as surrogates there have not had access to legal support. 
Um, they're often women who have very low literacy. There's a, you know, they've signed contracts or with an X and the contracts are in English and they don't speak a word of English. Um, they're often have been contained in situations physically where they haven't had access to their own social supports. So it's like a, a classic case of someone who has absolutely no power to speak for themselves. And I think that's why some clinics there have reported you know, um, cesarean rates of uh, greater than 90% and not just kind of compulsory cesarean rates, but actually having uh, babies routinely being born premature because that's been more convenient for um, either the service provider or the commissioning surrogates. And all of that has really bad consequences for the health of the women and the health of the children. And to me, it's a sign of why contracts, commercial contracts gone wild or com commodification of certain things that I feel shouldn't be commodified, turned into kind of fungible, exchangeable property can be so harmful because it means we start treating other people in ways that, you know, we normally just wouldn't. Um, this is like my really long-winded way of coming back around to what do I think about property? Absolutely not because you know, whether it's reproductive setting or another kind of setting, and I've done a lot of work in kind of buying and selling organs like kidneys, it's the same problem. Once you start thinking of yourself as having property rights in other people's bodies or in other people, as you might say about the child, that leads to an awful lot of terrible things. It doesn't necessarily happen. Yes, you can have these nice, beautiful cases where everyone wins and everyone's happy and no one's forced to do anything that they wouldn't have chosen to do. But it establishes a system which is really rife for abuse and, and bad things, which is obviously me putting my position out there at the beginning. Can I add to that, Betty? Yeah, of course. Yes, so listening uh, to Dominic, uh, uh, the following question pops up in, in my mind, and it's something that's been really on my mind lately. You know, I've, I've been thinking about my own position, uh, you know, under what conditions do I think surrogacy uh, is an option? And, um, well, uh, uh, already a few years ago, I, I, I made up my mind that I think commercial surrogacy is, is really too much fraught with uh, the risks of um, exploitation and commodification. But then I was thinking, what about um, other instances of surrogacy? And we're now discussing uh, contractual forms of surrogacy, right? And so something that I've been struggling with, and I'd like to ask that question to the audience today, is whether contracting about um, reproductive labor, but also about the delivery and handover of the child in itself already is commodifying to both uh, child-to-be and, uh, and, and surrogate mother. So even if it could be established that the relation, that the surrogacy, uh, sorry, the surrogacy the um, construction is altruistic. Uh, can you still say that contracting about it has commodifying uh, effects? And uh, these days I tend to think it is, but I'd love to hear your opinion about it. Uh, and it's also something that, you know, Maddie was referring to the article by the bioethicist Donna Dickinson, and she thinks also altruistic forms of surrogacy can have commodifying uh, implications. Uh, I wouldn't go as far as that, but I think contracting about it could already have such implications. So what do you guys think about that? And, and what does Dominic think about it? Maybe... Bridge while everyone else is thinking of, of their questions. Um, I, I feel like my instincts are aligned with yours there. It seems that there are certain aspects that um, that seem to they, they give you property rights in a person there's and again forgive me for when i screw up the the legal aspects but with property rights you you have i get a bundle of potential different rights and you might have a rights of use or exchange or transfer and still not have the right to sell something for example when we think of normal property usually where we're putting everything in there but it's conceivable that maybe with a child, um, if you've got children of your own, <laughs> I don't, but let's say I did, then maybe to some extent, I've, I've got the right to move this kid around and to send it to stay with its father or its grandparents for a holiday. I've got a lot of what might potentially be thought of, of as property rights. 
but I don't think it's commodification unless you start doing certain things. So I'm, when I say commodification, um, what I have in mind is uh, often what Margaret Radin in her book um, on commodification um, talked about in terms of certain criteria that things would need to meet to be uh, commodified. And I won't remember them properly off the top of my head, uh, but it's about treating things in a range of different ways, objectifying something, not recognizing it as having kind of interests or rights of its own, and also it having a fungible sale value. So that if I give you, you know, three of my books and you give me a donut and we do a swap and then I give the donut to someone else and they give me a banana, you know, all of these items are fungible because we can swap them and they all have some kind of commensurable value where we can find in a, a certain number of bananas will equate to a, a, a donut and a certain number of books. But if you're thinking of a child, um, then that's where we stop and we say, well, that it shouldn't be commodified because you can't put a price on a child. You can't say that these three children are equivalent to four of those kind of children or, or however many numbers of cars. As much as perhaps if you had kids, you might want to do that for some time, you know, trade them in. Um, so I think that's where I can see how with commercial surrogacy, you effectively start putting a price on something that shouldn't have a price. And that's where we see in the marketplace, people paying more for certain types of egg donors or certain types of surrogates for certain types of contracts. So you're, you're putting a price on particular elements and that's effectively potentially commodifying people. But with the altruistic, I think it's more about controlling and maybe undermining the respect that we might owe to people. It, it could be, but it's not necessarily going to be commodification unless there's some kind of monetary value attached. That would be my, my initial thought on that. But I think that's a really interesting thing to explore. Great. Um, does anyone in the audience have an opinion or a question to offer on this issue? I might throw in my two cents, which is a, a bit of a basic construction maybe, but I think that what I think about is value and the fact that um, if a, a sort of market for something exists where it is exchanged for money and we come to view it in that way, then it kind of makes the decision that an altruistic version of that can't really take place because say, for example, people could give away a house but we still think of that as property because that's the environment it has always existed in and it's taken on those characteristics and I think that you can't just get in the back door and say because we're doing this same process differently it's less commodifying to the baby for example but yeah um and then what and kinds of circumstances are you thinking about then that would make would turn the transaction into something commodifying if it's not if, if it's non-commercial um i was just referring to the fact that if it it sort of can exist in a commercial context and does then people sort of identify and draw on that process in trying to apply it in a way that is perhaps legally um available to them in their country that the, the characteristic of it being this valuable thing that people have an interest in acquiring gives it those inherent propertized characteristics. So are you going in the, forgive me if I'm misinterpreting you, are you going in the direction of when you have a market available over here, then it makes it very difficult to kind of have the non commercial valuable thing going on over here either because people will just go to the market because it's easier or because they start to think of the altruistic model as you know perhaps taking on some of those properties or um am i just completely yeah. misunderstanding? yeah that's that's what i'm getting at the, cool. the second one that you said is so what i was thinking and that's interesting because there's a lot of parallels with um, with markets in organs and a lot of interesting comparisons or analogies are being made between them. And one of the really common um, 
concerns uh, that are expressed, I don't happen to particularly share this one, um, but is that if you have a, given that we have a market for organs or kidneys over in this country, then it really means that we might as well just have a market over here, um, or that what we're already doing with organs is effectively a market, we're just not paying one component, we're not paying the donor. People often say everyone else gets paid for organ donation and transplantation, why not pay the people who provide the organs? So. Um, yeah, I think that's a really important concern to, to be thinking about. Uh, Dominic, is that also what's going on at the moment in Australia, that people are advocating uh, importing, uh, so to say, <laughs> the foreign model and start regulating commercial surrogacy instead of banning it? There's been, a, there's been a little bit of talk. There was a resurgence um, about 2016, a couple of people uh, from memory I can't remember who it was, someone in Sydney wrote a, a paper and got into the newspaper about saying we should be doing that. And that was a little, I found that anxiety provoking for a while. I think there was also quite a strong um, advocacy group amongst um, people who have uh, commissioned children overseas. And that seems to have died down though, at least from the media perspective and um, to my knowledge in recent years, but that's, you know, the fact that this is coming up at this discussion tonight, you know, who's to say that, that that's not going to come back again. Um, it does get raised every few years. Yeah, just like the organ trafficking. Uh, yeah, I have to say we've been pretty quiet on the organ, um, at least in Australia, sort of advocacy of, of organ markets has never really got a footing amongst our transplant professionals, unlike the United States or even potentially the Netherlands. Yeah. I would like to add maybe like a parallel to, because the way of thinking, I guess, um, is it happens anyway, so you might as well regulate it, uh, which is similar to drugs. But then I think in this context, it kind of like undermines the ethical implications of it. Um, so yeah, I, I like uh, in the article that was like introduced for this topic, I found like that to be a big problem because like a counter argument against like basically banning this type of uh, surrogacy is like it's happening anyways so you might as well just have it out in the open um, but then also um, to come back to uh, Matt's her point I think there's also a parallel like I question to myself what is the difference between like a, a contractual surrogacy and then adoption because functionally it's very similar um, but then I guess the, the, I don't know, I'm not really sure, um, how, if one is not excusable, the other would be because both kind of like objectify the child. Uh, I guess like in adoption, there's the, the, the need for the child to be taken care of, but still, even then the child is seen as something that's transferable and. I guess that's also problematic for like the fundamental human rights uh, case of it. So I don't know if uh, that sparks maybe. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Boris. I, I think, uh, uh, nice to see a fellow Dutchie, by the way. Good to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I completely agree with you. So the past years we've seen people uh, expressing very serious concerns about uh, baby markets when it comes to uh, adoption. And in the Netherlands, for instance, uh, uh, one of the main um, authorities in this field has said, you know, that adoption should be very, very carefully considered before undertaken. And many, also many donor-conceived children have spoken of the past years about, you know, that about the way that their interests, according to them, were not taken into consideration enough while they were being created. And at the same time, we see uh, such a large advocacy for uh, legalizing surrogacy in many parts of the world. I think it's a very strange uh, uh, coincidence, you know, that these, while we are, uh, uh, while we are becoming aware of the negative consequences for uh, ad adopted children and donor-conceived children, we are now about to introduce a system that might. Uh, create such um, uh, uh, unfortunate circumstances uh, uh, from, from scratch. So uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lesson to be learned and unfortunately it hasn't been learned uh, enough, I think, because at the moment in, in, in many parts of Europe, countries are considering to um, lift the ban 
on surrogacy on, uh, 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 to a certain extent because uh, th these countries are saying we don't want to uh, legalize commercial surrogacy but what we want to do is start regulate it so uh, for instance the UK and the Netherlands um, they want to adopt a system the following system so imagine you're uh, you want to, to have a baby and you found uh, a surrogate mother so you draw up a contract in which you uh, stipulate all the conditions then you go see either a surrogacy organization or a court or a, or a committee and they will give you the heads up or not so they will uh, approve or disapprove your arrangement and then they go okay go make babies you know it's state approved so the state approves of the uh, of the uh, uh, creation of the child go ahead because we've made several checks, a medical check, and you know, uh, a, a criminal record check, and a psychological check, and then they rubber stamp uh, the arrangement. And that's, that's something that's been, you know, in the Netherlands we have, a, uh, there was a, a last month a draft bill was uh, shared with the public that uh, advocates uh, such a regulatory, re regulatory approach, but also the UK is considering it. And uh, I'm very worried uh, about it. I, I think the, the intentions are really good, but I think in, 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 in uh, practice, it will turn out to be um, uh, opening the door for, you know, also commercial and commodifying and, um, exploitative practices because how can a judge see what's going to happen how can a judge uh you know uh, uh identify exploitation how can he or she see what what kinds of money uh, uh what kinds of uh, sums of money have been paid uh, so yeah, I, also think I think maybe eugenics would be uh, an issue in that case as well because there the state gets to decide who does and who doesn't use this technology and there might be like like the, what the world is struggling with right now is the like the implicit racism and that might be like somewhere in the system which like then gets to decide what people can and cannot use this type of technology and therefore can or cannot reproduce um so that implication is kind of like uh frightening to see a state then basically being allowed to play god and who does and doesn't get a baby yeah. 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 Topic. Dominic, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> when do you want me to stop? Like, <laughs> I could say so much. No, no. Yeah, it's a huge topic. Yeah. But I just mean in terms of, um, you know, we've seen websites whereby women who are egg donors are stating the fe their features, and then parents are choosing, you know, the, you know, potential features of their surrogate child off a menu basically yeah. Um, so yeah do you have any explorations on that um i know there's been some really interesting research that's been done uh, in sociology looking at um that, that kind of baby shopping and the preferences that are expressed by the the usual the typical kind of purchases or commissioners of these services who of course tend to be usually white um, usually wealthy um, educated etc and they pick as I think someone said certain phenotypic characteristics in in the gametes whether that be the sperm donor or the um, the oocyte donor and even there you see really gendered kind of preferences being expressed and then interestingly some people don't seem to really care about the surrogate as at all they might be really obsessive about what the surrogate will have to do in order to keep the pregnancy healthy but you really see the loss of identity of the surrogate because she's just a carrier, um, whereas what people invest in terms of what this baby will be like, they place all of that importance on um, you know, the, the genetic material. Um, and that's obviously a, a generalization. It, it doesn't apply to, to everyone who's engaging in surrogacy services, but again, often it's the market forces that dictate that. And it's the market that is designed to actually make you know, certain characteristics or to, to advertise so that people will be willing to pay more. You know, If you pay more, you get the Ivy League educated egg donor, for example. Um, so where was I going with this? Um, I can't remember. <laughs> That's a really good, um, really interesting perspective. And I'd like to backtrack slightly because we sort of did already touch on legal issues. Um, 
I want to flag that it like surrogacy commercial surrogacy is illegal in Australia and we did talk about um the things that are happening in places like India whereby you know it's almost like this western domination is continuing to spread its tentacles through this kind of subject which is really scary you know especially thinking um anyone who's interested you should watch Google Baby it's quite um explicit but it does shed light on what this kind of western reproductive tourism is doing to um women who are not subject to the same human rights or like family conventions and things like that that people who are wealthy are um like have women who are wealthy have the security of so um and then linking that to legality if, if western countries aren't legislating then they're almost taking political stance in allowing it to happen abroad in places where it's cheaper and things like that so do yeah do it I guess Dominique maybe you have something to say well yeah I think you're coming back to the the point that Boris made about um harm minimization you know the harm minimization argument um you know wouldn't it be better to to do this at home it would be safer for everyone there'd be, be better outcomes um, my personal stance is I'm very supportive of non-commercial, non-financially incentivized surrogacy, uh, which obviously we have access to in um, most Australian jurisdictions. Um, but then this, this worry that, well, we, we need stronger legislation. If we have prohibitive legislation, then people say, well, that drives people abroad. Um, I think we need to actually focus more on addressing the issues at home that enable people to actually get the services that they want and need and also focusing on education at home. Um, I do think it's from an ethical perspective, it's problematic to say we're not going to worry about what you're doing overseas, you know, as long as it's not happening here. And in fact, it's much easier if you go and do your things overseas and we don't have to worry about it. Um, I think that's kind of ethically irresponsible, but it's also really hard legally, I know, to enforce things like extraterritorial jurisdiction. And that's something that Australia is a really great example of because we've had extraterritorial jurisdiction for commercial surrogacy in a couple of states. And yet we've had hundreds of Australians during that period continuing to go overseas and doing something that technically they could be prosecuted for at home, but no prosecutions. Um, and yet, if we think about the fact it's been legal in Australia, altruistic surrogacy for many years, how many people on the street have heard about it compared with how many people have heard of organ donation? Um, and then people might say rightly, perhaps, um, well, this isn't such a big problem. It affects fewer people. Why should we invest, for example, public health dollars in trying to provide you know, make more surrogates available to the minority of wealthy individuals or couples who are going to pursue that option altruistically at home? Um, so, I, and I think though that that's another thing on a tangent to think about, we all get really excited about commercial surrogacy and these issues and a lot of people talk about how it's so important to address this so that people have an equitable, you know, opportunity to create children using surrogates. Um, but how much do we actually worry about the other barriers that people face to becoming parents um, or you know, being able to do lots of things in their lives that affect their lives really significantly. So why do we, we focus in on this one particular thing, which is really important, um, but doesn't actually impact, perhaps isn't as responsible for as many inequities as we might find elsewhere in our, our healthcare system. So um, a really, really roundabout and convoluted way to say it. I think the solutions need to begin at home, but I appreciate that that's a lot harder in say the Netherlands because you're tucked in the middle of the Council of Europe and what you do in the Netherlands is going to be much more affected by what's happening next door in Spain um, than what we have in Australia. We have an ability, I think, to perhaps not within the states, but within our nation, we have the ability to regulate things more effectively. Um, yeah. Well, on a European level, not much law uh, uh, can be uh, uh, identified in this field because, you know, there's just too much dissensus about it and several initiatives have <clears throat> Uh, been made uh, the past years, but you know uh, uh, there weren't enough. Uh, there, there, there wasn't consensus. So uh, actually, in uh, you know, we of course in in the European Union we uh, underline the importance of non-commercialization. You know, there's this legal principle of non-commercialization, and that's something that 
all states, all member states have to adhere to. But then again, how to uh, uh, define commercial and non-commercial. So in Spain, you can uh, see waiting lists for students who want to uh, donate uh, their exiles. And we know that the youth un unemployment rates are really high over there. So it makes you wonder, you know, about how altruistic this donation truly is. Whereas in the Netherlands, students, uh, you get paid also a thousand euros, just as in Spain for, for exiles. But I guess uh, uh, employment until recently, until the corona crisis started, was still okay in the Netherlands. And then and over here, it was not an incentive to donate your exile. So, you know, even if uh, on paper we all agree in Europe that um, it shouldn't be commercial, then still everybody will have different uh, definitions and also um, it's uh, depending on the, uh, com the economic uh, conjunctures. How do you say that? Um, uh, uh, economic uh, state of affairs of, uh, of that particular country. So, uh, yeah, in that sense, it's not very different than Australia, I think. But it's very easy to enter other states, that's true, and, and buy exiles or uh, enter into surrogacy agreements um, uh, in, in other states that are in Europe because of the free movement of uh, services and goods. Yeah, and, you know, the European court has recognized surrogacy as a service uh, and um, uh, embryos and exiles as goods as part of the free movement. So th yeah, that's a reality to, to uh, that's for sure, yeah. I was just gonna say, I think that describes what is the biggest barrier to effective um, non-commercial donation programs or, or surrogacy programs is the issue of reimbursement of costs and um, so-called compensation and what most countries usually do of course is they set a fixed price or a fixed a flat reimbursement fee which you know if a bunch of random policymakers, maybe a random ethicist sit down and say oh i wouldn't do that for five hundred dollars that wouldn't incentivize me you know that's cool they say 500 and then it turns out as i think the, the spanish example was that the vast majority of the egg donors were actually romanian migrants so they weren't spaniards they were romanian migrants for whom you know 800 euros represented a huge amount of money um, and the other thing is that, at least in the organ circles, people who've been advocates of compensation for organ donors have really tried to use that as a Trojan horse. And, you know, where they've said, well, a $20,000, you know, compensation would be a fair price or a fair reimbursement. And then, you know, that number has increased in some countries and it really just becomes a cover for what is in fact a, a payment. So, um, yeah, it's where people need to always focus on is like, what's the underlying ethical principle? And then if there's some kind of specific detail and people haven't actually thought of the implications of that detail and they don't watch that detail to see, do we need to make adjustments up or down in terms of price, then the laws and the ethical guidelines, they just don't do what they're supposed to do because they haven't been designed or updated in a functional manner. Yeah, the lines are really blurred, which is why we can debate on this for hours, I guess. Um, <laughs> But uh, one thing that I actually am quite curious about, which I guess is kind of legal, but it's also ethical, um, is what's the problem with regards to citizenship? Because, Bruda, I remember we did a case where um, some parents brought their child back and I think the um, fertility clinic stuffed up the sample and the baby actually didn't have the genetics of either of the parents and was rejected and the child was taken from their parents. So what are the citizenship issues that arise from this if it's not legislated? Yeah, it, 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 it's such a sad thing. Um, yeah, it, uh, if you engage in uh, cross-border surrogacy arrangements, one, if, you know, things uh, don't turn out, uh, don't turn out as you expected your child um, may end up being a stateless person um, for instance the babies that we all saw in the ukrainian video you know of the ukrainian surrogacy clinic remember you know the big lines of babies in the hotel lobby they're, they're actually all stateless uh, and without a, a family name because um, uh, according to the Ukrainian uh, um, system of family law, um, uh, the babies who are being commissioned, they ha uh, have the, they are supposed 
to have the family name of the commissioning parents and the nationality of the commissioning parents right away on the birth uh, act. However, in order to create that birth act, how do you call that a birth act? Birth register? Well, um, uh, the, the parents need to be present. And because of the lockdown, they can't be present. So until they are able to come up to, to go to the consulate in, in Ukraine and uh, sign uh, the birth act, the children will remain uh, stateless and without family name. So uh, yeah, I think that's very dehumanizes and it aggravates the anonymity of it all and also uh, aggravates the impression of, you know, a baby factory. Uh, you know, the images of course didn't help either because it really looked very uh, dystopian, uh, Brave New World-like with, you know, like uh, 50 crying babies, but also legally speaking, it's, it's very sad. And um, yeah, and sometimes these children uh, are stuck in legal limbo, you know, like uh, the baby manji case, you know, the, uh, the uh, Japanese baby, I think the parents, the commissioning parents split up before the child was born. And then they, um, uh, because of the com complexities involved with migration law and family law, the child was stuck in, in India. Um, yeah, so so I agree uh, from that perspective with a certain uh, degree of pragmatism. I mean, once the child is born, it will be really, I think, indeed a violation of human rights not to um, give the child a name and, and a nationality. And I think uh, once we've arrived at that point, once the birth of the child is um, fait accompli, uh, an accomplished fact, yeah, the authorities cannot do anything else but uh, cooperate with the parents. But I do think, though, that, that, that there is a difference in between uh, co uh, collaborating with, those, with the parents in, in these tragic cases or, you know, turning this into um, a, a legal reality by facilitating these kinds of arrangements, by saying, you know, it's... Uh, like Boris was saying, it's, it's happening anyway, so what's the difference in making this official? And, you know, if you do it that way, uh, you can count on us to, to, to rubber stamp it. And that's what some countries are now advocating. I think, I think that, uh, that that sort of pragmatism um, uh, ignores how, you know, how, how the law cannot be perfect and that there, there are always going to be uh, tragic choices and tragedy, tra tragedies taking place. And if the, if the legal systems are going, going to try and also regulate those um, situations, I think you're sending out the wrong message. I think many people will be reading that message not as a pragmatic one, uh, but by, you know, but many, many commissioning parents or potential commissioning parents will be saying, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong. Let's just go to a poor country and commission a child because, you know, the Dutch authorities are going to co cooperate anyways. So that's, I think, something that's gone missing in many of these uh, more pragmatic um, pleas, uh, mm -hmm. that they somehow think that the law should be perfect and if it's not perfect then you, you might as well just facilitate all all that's going on and i think the law is also about sending a message to society and about you know the value of 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 of, of having a child and about embedding a child in a certain setting and uh, you know about how not to treat uh women who are carrying your child so that's, I think, being ignored in these more pragmatic approaches. And uh, yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of dangerous loopholes. Um, Dominique, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, that's just exactly what I would want to say. <laughs> yeah, I really agree with that. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. And, and therefore, because I think it will be very difficult to, you know, come up with a, a neat arrangement that's what we say in, in the Netherlands oh we're going to take care of it and we're going to make it more workable I, I think that's a, an illusion I think you'll you know uh, it's a, a, a very nice of the government that it wants to take care and take responsibility but I think it will uh, it, I think the government and judges are bound to fail to regulate this in a nice way uh, completely bypassing exploitation and commodification what will instead happen is that the state 
and the judiciary will become complicit in also these uh, exploitative arrangements. And therefore, I think it's very important what Dominic was saying, that it, it comes down to education too. You know, we should be discussing this and, um, and not be going like, oh, you know, if people want to do it, we, we should just facilitate it. No, you know, there's actual downsides to, to surrogacy arrangements. And I think people are, you know, are not aware of that uh, too much anymore because we see these, I don't know how that's what it's like in Australia, but in the Netherlands, we have all these reality soaps about people commissioning babies and how nice it is and how, how, how tragic it is that they have to go abroad to commission the baby. So that's, that's the message that people are, increasingly uh, receiving and I, I think people should also see the other side um, and you know maybe people should also consider other constructions like co-parenting you know if you're a gay couple and you want to have a baby um, why not approach a, a, a woman who also wants to have a baby and do co-parenting and then you don't have exploitation and, and the surrogate mother will also be you know she will not be a surrogate mother she will be a, a, a legal mother too so Actually, that's what some of the students in my class have opted for uh, after we discussed all these things. Uh, one of my students, he wanted to have a baby with his, uh, with his boyfriend, with his husband, I mean, and, and, and he gave it some real thought and, and, and then he thought, you know, co-parenting might be a better alternative. So why not advocate those kinds of constructions? Yeah, um, I was going to say that um, I totally agree with that educations of the downside. Uh, speaking of, I think we've covered 90% of it actually because their conversation has been so engaging. But I was going to just add in a few more points of reform. Um, Dominique, I've read through a few of your um, through of your articles and things like that. What is your opinion on national self-sufficiency if we're talking about possible reforms um, in Australia and the Netherlands? And Britta, you've talked a lot about um, how you're really unhappy with um, upcoming reforms. I assume by that you're talking about the rubber stamping, if there's anything else you have to add. But I'm also really yeah, interested in your opinion on what national self-sufficiency is, about how there can be more than one argument uh, mainstream argument towards what the future is? Um, so national self-sufficiency is really a, it's a particular kind of concept that probably most people have never heard of. It arose out of the WHO's work on um, organ and tissue donation and transplantation and basically, and blood, um, sorry, historically it was first blood, basically uh, saying, you know, this sort of whole anti-commercialism movement arose in the 1970s in response to the global markets in human blood where people said, hang on, we're actually exploiting a lot of poor people in really disadvantaged countries, taking their blood to use it to transfuse in really wealthy countries and particularly got concerned because it turned out that that placed the you're at much higher risk of having infected blood. So there was kind of a self-interest thing as well. And the response to that from a, a political perspective was to say, well, each country needs to take responsibility for meeting their own needs and becoming self-sufficient. Um, and I've explored that from a slightly more philosophical or ethical perspective as sort of a responsibility to meet your own needs and not actually impose the burdens of meeting those needs on others, but also to promote and encourage solidarity and people actually working together. And then from a practical perspective, it's kind of multi-pronged. It's not just about saying we need to increase the supply of blood donors or surrogate mothers or surrogate women. Um, we need to actually look at preventing or reducing some of the demand or finding alternative options um, if they're of you know, comparable therapeutic value, value and so on. So it's really about engaging everyone and looking at a range of different strategies and questioning some of the things we do. It's not just about supply and demand, which is what often a lot of my fellow ethicists and um, some legal scholars um, and a lot of members of the public who for very good reason are really emotionally invested in this they just say we don't have enough we need more how do we normally get more of something as the recent pandemic showed us you run out of whatever product in the supermarket you increase prices and you know people will produce more of that so i think there's kind of a simplistic mentality thinking we can solve all of the problems by offering people money for these services um, but often I think that isn't actually going to build a sustainable model over time that will be ethically acceptable um, to everyone. And so that's where 
I really think Australia could do a lot more. Uh, we have our problems with our different jurisdictions and very different approaches to reproduction um, within the various jurisdictions. And I think it's a very big hot potato for politicians to engage with for a range of reasons. So I, I can't see that happening anytime soon, um, but that's where I think personally we should start to try and think of it, um, if that makes sense. Thanks, Dominic. Um, Britta, do you have anything final to ask about um, other things that you're unhappy with about the European perspective or what you look forward to of what would be really helpful to um, education, I guess, is the start, don't you think? Yeah, I think education is, is, is a, a really important and maybe more generally, I think what we need is a bigger narrative because, you know, nowadays people... Uh, at least in the Netherlands, it's all about what people want. You know, individuals need this, individuals need that, needs, needs vocabulary. And of course, needs are important, but there are also bigger things, you know, more collective interests at stake. And so I think we should dare and speak up and discuss, you know, what's, our, what's a common vision of, 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 of uh, the future of reproduction could look like. Uh, instead of just leaving it up to individuals and uh, you know because uh, if we don't have that bigger discussion it's just going to be uh, people who are going to be manipulated by reproductive markets or reality shows uh, and um, you know uh, uh, instead of uh, engaging in um, uh, what the effects are of, of such arrangements and the you know the bigger picture and the social economic background and uh, you know what the effects are of uh, individuals behavior and so uh, yeah I think pragmatic politics cannot do the job you know after, once the child is born we, we have to be pragmatic I agree with that but uh, there's I think uh, a, a, a real big need to also uh, be talking about this bigger uh, issue and uh, that's what people are scared of nowadays they don't want to speak out also it has to do with reproduction so touches on you know uh, uh, vulnerable parties in society and people tend to focus on, on commissioning parents as the vulnerable parties but uh, they are to a certain extent especially when they're from um, uh, in the LGBT uh, uh, backgrounds, but there's also other vulnerable parties such as children and uh, surrogate mothers. And so I think we should all add that together and be discussing that in its, uh, in its richness and complexity. Okay, thank you so much. I see that, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, we were just, I was just gonna say, um, we'd like to go a couple of minutes over time. If people need to head off, that's completely fine. And thanks for joining. But if Bruno and Dominique, you're happy to stay for a few more minutes, that would be great. Um, thank you so much for all of that discussion. It's been amazing. Um, we're just gonna ask a couple of audience questions. So uh, we've had a couple of pre-submitted ones and then if there are pressing questions from the audience, that would be great also. Um, but one that was pre-submitted is actually about the Gammy case um, and we'd like to hear basically either or both of your takes on that case. If one of you could give a brief overview of it for people who aren't familiar, that would be awesome. Either of you keen to talk about that? Um, so I think briefly, and people can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the baby gammy case um, was a case that really drew attention to commercial surrogacy or international commercial surrogacy in the Australian context when um, an Australian couple commissioned uh, a child uh, was in Thailand. Um, when the what turned out to be children, twins were born, um, one of the, a girl and a boy and the boy had Down syndrome. Um, at the time, the media narrative was that the commissioning parents refused to take home um, the child with Down syndrome, uh, allegedly because they didn't want um, you know, a disabled child or a child that they perceived to be disabled, and they took home uh, the girl. And then the um, Thai uh, surrogate, she said that she was going to keep baby Gammy, who was the, the boy with Down syndrome, and she actually started advocating, saying she wanted the girl back as well. The story got further complicated because first it was, you know, how horrible these wealthy Australian parents, you know, commissioned children and then rejected a child who didn't measure up to their, you know, preferences or beliefs about, you know, children. 
Um, but then it kind of got worse because it was revealed that the father in the um, commissioning couple actually had a history of child sex abuse, which then, of course, added a whole other element of, um, you know, that child sex offenders can go and, and procure children overseas um, and so on. As I think the news item that you circulated uh, though to the group uh, shows that actually when the court ruled on the case, it turns out that, um, well, allegedly according to the court ruling, um, the parents uh, did not uh, intend to leave the child. It was the um, surrogate, um, she's now definitely a surrogate mother who wanted to keep both of the children. Some agreement was made, they took home the girl. Um, there were also some allegations which were apparently unproven that, you know, who was getting access to all the money that the the, meat, the public donated in support of um, uh, the woman in Thailand. You know, it got really complicated and elicited these really strong emotional reactions. And then the reality turned out that maybe it wasn't as cut and dried as people had initially thought. But I think all of the complexities in the case, and regardless of whether some of the facts didn't turn out to be borne out in court, um, it really shows that problem of treating um, those potential children and the surrogates as service providers, as property. And then, you know, you buy something from the supermarket and you don't like it and you return it or you just leave it on the counter. Um, and obviously we don't want to do that with children. So it's, I think, very illustrative of how the market can go wrong when we start treating people as um, property in that way. I don't know if that kind of captures um, the case or not. I think, yeah, I completely agree with you, Dominic. And um, for me, what's also very interesting uh, um, about this case is I think that it, that the Baby Demi case also illustrates how even if uh, an arrangement is non-commercial, uh, it can have commodifying effects. So let's imagine that the Australian commissioning couple had not paid money to, to the Thai lady. Uh, that's very besides reality, but let's just imagine it for the sake of the argument. And, and they said, you know, we don't want this uh, 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 second half of the twins because, he, uh, you know, he has Down syndrome and he has uh, heart, uh, heart problems. So, you know, you better abort this uh, uh, child. And if not, you won't get the money. Yeah? That's, I think, also something that I read in the press uh, um, reports. So, you know, baby Gemi, he was, he was perceived as damaged goods. And, you know, if, if, you're, if you order uh, an iPhone and it's, it's uh, dead on arrival, you know, you can return it to the factory. But a baby, you can't return it to the factory. And still they apply that kind of logic. You know, we're not gonna, gonna uh, pay for that one. And so, um, um, or yeah, and even if, if, even if you leave out the commercial bit, you know, they were making demands about um, uh, aborting the child. And so uh, perceiving a child as, as damaged goods is, of course, also commodifying. So I think that you could use that example to um, argue that in some cases, even um, non-commercial but contractual forms of surrogacy can have commodifying uh, effects. Yeah, and I think um, another interesting thing is that the nature of the contract allows the parents to request an abortion um, and perhaps gives them some leverage on payment, whether or not that person decides to abort because they're legally bound to abort. Um, but also something I thought was weird about this case is they actually asked her to abort it seven months into the pregnancy, which is extremely dangerous. Yeah, so... Yeah, so and but they have leverage because they're paying, and um, but I don't know how that could that should be binding because I don't think it should be legal to ask them to, to abort seven months in, mm. especially when I think it's only up to three months that it's safe. I think you can, um, probably, I'm good. I guesstimate that you can probably ask someone to do anything. It's, um, are you asking them in circumstances where they don't have the freedom to decline? You know, if, if their commissioning parents, I think it makes sense that they would be involved in, in decision-making. Um, but that just reminds me of some of the problems with the contracts, right? You might think, well, how, how would they be forcing her? But if there are certain payments attached to certain outcomes of the pregnancy, whether that be a successful live birth, or in this case, 
or in some cases, you know, they won't pay costs if certain things don't get followed, then you can have a situation where it's not just a matter of not getting the big financial payoff that you've perhaps signed up for, but you might actually find yourself in very difficult financial circumstances if you don't do, you know, what people want you to do. So there can be a whole lot of different financial levers that can put a lot of pressure on people. So it's not really a request as such. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you both for that answer to that question and for your perspective on the Gami case. Um, at this point, I think it's probably a good time to wrap up unless any audience members have any pressing questions that they'd like to ask quickly or comments, feelings. Um, if we do have time, I just had a really quick question um, about, I guess, the legal parentage status of these children. From my understanding in Australia, or at least Victoria, uh, the surrogate is the legal mother until uh, parenting is transferred over. But I understand in a lot of other jurisdictions, especially where commercial surrogacy is legal, I think in the US anyway, the commissioning parents are the legal parents. And uh, if we have time, uh, any feedback in terms of like the legal or ethical issues and that I think would be super interesting uh, to hear from you guys about. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to, I think that's a very relevant question. Thanks for that. <clears throat> you know, that uh, uh, you're, of course, referring to the maxim of mater semper certa est. Eh? The mother is always certain. It's a Roman law maxim, and it uh, used to be um, one of the foundations of uh, family law in many um, uh, civil law countries, and also common law countries, actually, I think. Um, and yeah uh i think once you abandon that maxim as uh, an increasing number of people are propagating at the moment i think uh there's a a risk a higher risk that the uh, surrogate mother is seen as a, a never a mother gestational carrier you know what i mean so uh the i think it increases the risk that she will be uh, approached as as a vessel because yeah you know she's not the mother she's just carrying the child uh and this is not only problematic potentially from an ethical perspective but also from a human rights perspective because you know the the rights to physical integrity the right to family life the right to self-determination uh, these are all human rights and 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 and, and uh well uh uh uh, women's rights are human rights and uh, so I think uh, 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 it, it, it has uh, uh, it is quite dangerous to be abandoning matters and percentages and actually the um, uh, UN rapporteur on uh, 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 what is it children's rights uh, sale of children she children yeah yeah, thanks. Uh, actually, she's a Dutchie, uh, that's uh, Maud de Boer. Uh, she uh, uh, says that abandoning matters in Perserta is uh, opens up the way for uh, also the commodification of children, not only of the mother, but also of, 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 of uh, children, because she said, you know, this is one of the requirements for, for these more business-like uh, commercial uh, transactions. So she, she, and I agree with her, I think uh, you cannot automatically transfer uh, these uh, parental rights uh, upon birth without thereby exposing the surrogate mother to the, the danger of being treated as a, a, a never a mother gestational carrier. So uh, yeah, I think it's a very important maxim actually. Yeah. And, you know, of course, it's a whole hassle to, to, for, for commissioning parents to be appointed then as also legal parents, but that serves a certain purpose, you know, the whole hassle, because then you can see whether the surrogate mother truly agrees. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's not a mere formality and, 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 and therefore guaranteeing uh, the rights of both the child and the surrogate mother. Yeah. So, yeah. I, shouldn't, I don't think we should think, make things much easier, actually. Yeah. Um, awesome. Thank you for that, Britta. Um, and at this point, we will wrap up as we've now gone 12 minutes over time. So thank you both so much for your input tonight. It's been oh, oh, 
Um, thank you both. It's been awesome to have both of your perspectives. Really um, grateful for your time. Thank you very much. And to everyone else, thank you very much for coming. Thanks for having, having us. It was wonderful. Awesome. It's been really fun. Thank you. <laughs> See you now.